Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom. Celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned, independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at banyan.com. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Branches of Wisdom, the Banyan Books podcast. I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. Our guest today is Melody Beattie, who is one of America's most beloved self-help authors and a household name in addiction and recovery circles. As a pioneering voice in self-help literature and the recovery movement, millions of readers have trusted Melody's words of wisdom and guidance because she knows firsthand what they're going through. She is the author of many best-selling books, including The Language of Letting Go, Playing It by Heart, The Grief Club, Beyond Codependency, and The Codependent No More Workbook. Today, Banyan Books is delighted to have Melody Beattie with us live in conversation about the new revised and updated version of her international best-selling book, Codependent No More. In 2009, Newsweek named Codependent No More one of the four most essential self-help books of all time. Originally released in 1986, this book introduced the world to the term codependency. Since then, it has become a cultural phenomenon that has helped heal millions of readers. With over 7 million copies sold, this modern classic holds the key to understanding codependency and unlocking its hold on your life. And this new revised edition includes an all-new chapter on trauma and anxiety, subjects that Beattie has long felt necessary to address within the context of codependency, making it even more relevant today than it was when it first entered the national conversation over 35 years ago. If you would like to learn more about today's honored guest and her work, you can visit her website, which is Melody bt.com. Banyan community, please join me in a warm, warm welcome for Melody Beatty. Hi, Melody. Hi, Ross. I, I need to say how completely enamored I am with your bookstore and your commitment to keeping an independent bookstore going all these years. So congratulations. Oh, uh, thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. It's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. And it's all because of the great community that we have and, and the, the amazing team of people. Um, so how are you doing today? Thanks for being here. It's, it's really wonderful. I'm doing all right. We've had a lot of rain. I'm in the LA area. 
So we've been inundated with rain and this ground is not suited for rain at all, but I'm happy. So, and it wonderful. Be, yeah. We're getting the rain here in Vancouver too. It's pretty gray. Hmm. Now, Melody, this, this book is, is, is a modern day classic. Uh, I'm wondering for those in our audience who may have read the original version of Codependent No More, can you tell us what's different about this new edition? Sure. One thing that's different is all of my triggers, my worst triggers, the people that really triggered my codependency were still alive when I wrote Codependent No More. So I had to like whoosh around their true identities and protect people a little bit just you know, for authorship reasons. So, but they're all dead now. So I was able to tell the true stories that initiated the writing, not in a disrespectful way, but in a way that makes more sense than the writing originally did. So that's different. Um, I put the true story of the breakup of my marriage in, I, 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 I had, covered that up like with false identities and and you know mished it up a bit but I I told the truth in that and that felt good and I could do it without hurting another human um I updated much of the language in there because it was like you said it's been 35 36 years so biggest goals were getting a water bed <laughs> back then we did not have social media back then um it it felt like looking at a 40 year old yearbook from high school it just didn't really completely fit anymore but also it, it's important to remember that when codependency first popped into our consciousness you know it came like other things we got it in bits and blurbs and We've been discovering and uncovering more truths about this as time has passed. One of the things, I'm, I'm sure these issues were around before, but we didn't really name them and we didn't understand how their interplay with codependency issues. But I, what I'm most proud of and grateful for in this release is a new chapter on anxiety and trauma. Um, it's pretty pertinent, and I've come to believe that learning to soothe ourselves and keep a life of peace, not trauma, takes dedication, but it's directly connected to our codependency, too. Um, it is. When we have high anxiety, you know, we're going to be doing a lot more controlling, caretaking, impulsive behavior seeking, and other issues. So. That's what I did. And oh, the resources in the end, we've really upgraded them to be more relevant in today's world to what people need. Like if they're really hurting, if they're in a traumatic situation, they can go to that resource section and they can, you know, find at least a connection to a connection to the help that they need. And I, I'm, I feel really good about that. And, you know, for me, this is, this is my first time actually reading a book about codependence. It's not an area that I've studied before. 
I was surprised, actually, the subtitle of the book, How to Stop Controlling Others and Start Caring for Yourself. For some reason in my mind, I had never related control, controlling others as something that related to codependency. I'm wondering if you can help us understand how that manifests within codependent relationships. Usually any way it can. Mm. I think one of the primary behaviors of codependency is feeling like we need control is an illusion, but people with codependency issues generally feel like they need to control everything or it will just zoom out of control. And so they're always hovering over their spouse, their friends, the people they supervise at work. I mean, anyone we have a relationship in can become an ultimate target for our controlling abilities because controlling comes from fear. If I just let go, if I'm just myself, if I'm just doing and, and, and saying what I feel, everything will go to hell, you know? And so we're, we're keeping ourselves controlled. We're trying to control our loved ones. And it is, um, it annoys other people. It doesn't work because control is an illusion. And um, ultimately it depletes us. Control doesn't work. Okay, thank you. Now, one of the other entry points, I think, for this conversation is trying to define something that can be very broad and have many different meanings to many people. Um, I know your entry point into understanding codependency was through the world of drug and alcohol addiction and, and families and friends of those in relationship with an uh, individual with substance abuse issues, but it can take many forms. And you write in the book, codependency has a fuzzy definition because it is a gray, fuzzy condition. It is complex, theoretical, and difficult to, to, to define in one or two sentences. I'm wondering if you can shed some light on how you, what your working definition is of codependence and some of the different ways that it might manifest. Sure. People with codependency issues generally love other people more than they love themselves to the other person's detriment and to their own. And the true goal of recovery is learning to come to some peace with genuinely understanding and practicing self-love which can also feel foggy and confusing to people. But yeah, that's what it is. It's people who love others more than they love themselves and um, overlook themselves, what they need, what they feel, what matters to them. And from that comes the true heart of the mess of codependency. When we've kept ourselves buried, ignored, and overlooked for that many years, um, we don't go away. We're still there, but we need some attention, don't we? You talked about self-love there. And I think this is one of the things, often when I've got an interview coming up, I'll talk to some of my friends about it. And I was speaking to a friend about codependence. He's a, a longtime recovered alcoholic who's in his elder years now. Mm -hmm. And he's very service oriented. He, he loves to be there to support people. And he, I, th I think for other people too, there might be confusion around what healthy support looks like and what a codependence looks like. Cause he, that was the question in his mind. And I wanted to voice that question for people that might hold that confusion about, well, what about the joy of putting others first or loving others? Cause even in some religious circles, 
we might justify codependent behavior by saying, oh, I'm, I'm supposed to be serving others. I'm supposed to be loving others. Can you help well, us and, clarify? And we are. Service is a very healthy, very helpful, very recovery-oriented behavior. But nowhere in the world does it say love other people and berate yourself. It, it just doesn't. We can be much more effective helpers when we balance love for ourselves with love for others. And I'm not talking about narcissism, um, which is also another disorder that can really hook codependence now. But I'm talking about a gentle, vulnerable, and humble self-love that begins to take ourselves into account. For many of us, I mean, if we were born in an alcoholic family or born in a traumatic family, we may have never really received love. And so then we start focusing on loving other people to make up for this void inside of ourselves. Those relationships don't work. We have to come to people into life with a full cup, with our, our whole soul and heart in here. You share really, really beautifully and honestly in this book, uh, this new edition, your own personal story and experiences. Um, I'm wondering if you can shine a little bit of light for people on, on, um, some of your formative experiences and your, your marriage with David that sort of, um, brought to light. Solidified. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I did not necessarily have an easy life, but it probably was easier than a lot of other people's, um. I was abducted when I was four years old by a stranger and molested. The police had to come find me and bring me back to my family. And that started a, a family dynamic of not being allowed out of the house, but being locked in a house where I lived there alone. Um, a childhood filled with illnesses, rape and incest more than any human should have by the time I was 18 and left home. But I did quite well in my studies. And when I was six years old, I knew I wanted to be a writer. I was like making notes on things around the house and writing them and reading things to my dolls. I never played nurse with my dolls. I played educator. <laughs> and that got me on my way. Uh, by the time I was, what, 22, 23, I landed in treatment in Wilmer, Minnesota. And I reconnected with my soul after the abuse, after my addiction. I had, I had started just trying to heal the pain that was inside of me, you know. And back in, in, in those days, we just told people to shape up and do better. And most of us are doing about the best we can. And so if someone tells us to do better, we go, how? I mean, how? what would that even feel like? What would that even look like? Especially, you know, with children. So, but treatment did it for me. It, it was, it was home. It was where I met myself. It was where I found myself. And I was there for eight months and almost didn't want to leave when it was time, but I did. And, and two years later, I ended up marrying David. 
and he was the head of a, a very large treatment organization in the state of Minnesota. Um, good looking guy, charming guy, so sweet. But I didn't know he was still an alcoholic that was continued to drink. I, I did not know that. He kept that concealed from me. And shortly after we married, I got pregnant with Nicole. When I brought her home from the hospital, I got home to my, my apartment with David and the toilet kept running. You know, it just ran and ran and ran. And I go in there and I jiggle it and it would stop. And so finally I went in there and I took the top off the toilet and there was a bottle of vodka hidden in the toilet tank. I mean, if that wasn't your classic days of wine and roses, um, shocking exposure, I don't know what is, but it was very traumatic because of all the things I didn't want to do. I did not want to marry an alcoholic. My dad had been an alcoholic. He left when I was two. I barely saw him again. My mom said all her problems were caused by my dad. You know, I mean, that that whole, and I did not want to be an alcoholic. And that's exactly what I became. So we're all dealt with a lot of, a lot, some, or in some cases, fewer situations as children that we have to come to terms with because we can't change it. The only thing we can do with our past is accept it and make peace with it and set a new destination for ourselves and start telling a new story in our lives. So that's it in a nutshell. Oh, well, I mean, since that time, do you want to know what caused what really exasperated my trauma in uh, 1990 on my son's 12th birthday my daughter who's two years older than him took him skiing at Afton Alps in Minnesota and that was the last time I saw Shane alive he hid his head on a mogul knocked his brain stem loose and by then I had divorced David. My family was my two kids, Nicole and Shane, and now it was Nicole. So that started me on a whole new journey of healing in my life and an incredible new journey of trauma that didn't know that much about. Our, our world didn't know that much about trauma and how to deal with it in individual people's lives. So I learned the hard way, didn't I? only took about 20 years. Wow. Thank you for sharing that, Melody. I, I, I want to ask, it's so powerful hearing your story and the way that you've used your life and uh, very challenging, heartbreaking circumstances to be a voice to help others. Um, I'm wondering, you share other people's stories in this book too, um, and you tell us there, there's a, a principle in Al-Anon that members say, identify, don't compare. Can you tell us more about that and, and how we can actually use other people's stories to identify, not compare, and what the power of that is? Well, I wish I could tell it to the whole world. <laughs> because it's like the last thing the globe is doing right now is identifying and not comparing. Uh, but it's about letting go of everything we think is different about other people, why we're not like them, um, everything that makes us 
so much different from them. But usually, if we look with our hearts, we can find what we have in common with others. But we have to go to our heart for that. We can't stay up here. Yeah. You tell us that recovering from codependence is exciting. At the end of chapter four, you write, many, many recoveries from problems that involve a person's mind, emotions, and spirit are ongoing and grueling. Not so here. Except for healthy human emotions we would be feeling anyway, and twinges of discomfort as we begin to behave differently, recovery from codependency is exciting. It's liberating. Can you tell us more why this recovery from codependency is such an exciting process? Because we're letting ourselves out of the prison, which is our own body that we've been trapped in most of our lives. We're giving ourselves permission to be ourselves. We're learning how to be ourselves. We're learning who we are. Many of us, I didn't know who I was, but when I started recovering, I was so lost in other people. But the journey of finding out who we are. It can be scary at first. Many of us have attachment issues. Many women think they're only complete if they're in a relationship with someone. I mean, there's all these hangups we have along the way, but it um, it's a remarkable journey. Being trapped in a relationship that we hate being in, being trapped anywhere that we don't have to be, but we're keeping ourselves trapped is an absolutely horrid experience. It really is. When we can't say what we think, when we're discounted, when we're not listened to, um, that's not fun. But many of us, there, there's there's a saying or an, an old story about if you put a frog into boiling water, it'll jump out immediately. But if you put a frog into room temperature water and then slowly turn up the heat, It'll stay in there until it dies. Well, that's what codependency feels like. We feel like a frog that's been placed in cool water. And then at some point it started boiling and it's too late to get out. And we don't know how to get out. One of the chapters in the book is titled Live Your Own Life. Um, I'm wondering, for, let's say I'm someone who's been in that slowly boiling water for many years to the point where I've forgotten what it's even like to live my own life. What do you tell people in those circumstances where to even begin in terms of starting to live a life that resonates with who they actually are? Most people need to get help of some kind, whether it's from a book, whether it's from a group, but it, it having help is so helpful. <laughs> I mean, good help because we turn into, we, we, we don't know how to find peace in ourselves. So, and this is the kind of service that's not helpful. So we spend our days and our nights trying to save other people because we don't know how to save ourselves. We don't know what to do. So we turn into kind of busy bodies instead of people being of service. Right. Okay. Before you, you mentioned attachment issues and this principle of, of detachment which you say is an, it's an underlying, uh, I forget the word you use. It's an underlying um, principle in the, in the um, 
breaking away from codependency is, is cultivating detachment. <laughs> and uh, you say this about um, dependency and attachment when you're, you're kind of in a different, in a section in the book, you're listing all these qualities of these, of codependence and about uh, dependency and attachment. You say many codependents don't feel happy, content, or peaceful within ourselves. Look for happiness outside ourselves. Latch on to whoever or whatever we think can provide happiness and feel terribly threatened by the loss of anything or person we think provides our happiness. I'm wondering if you can just illuminate a little bit more about this principle of attachment and detachment. What is healthy attachment? What does healthy detachment look like? That's, that's a challenging question because it's not going to be the same for all of us and because it's an inside job. It's always an inside job. Many of us are people who never had proper attachments formed when we should have had them formed. We didn't bond with anyone. I said it earlier, we didn't receive love from anyone. So we feel like an untethered balloon running around the world looking for someone to to grab the string on us so we feel tethered. Um, we're looking for that sense of safety and home in someone else, not understanding that we have it in here because we've never learned that. We haven't learned it yet. And when we do, we're like a plane that's finally taking off and getting in the air. Um, we can learn to fly because we have home. We know how to find home. We're, we bring home with us. But until we start working on those issues, many of us don't even know what it feels like to be home. Unless what it feels like to be home is to be in a very traumatic, painful environment, in which case we will re keep recreating that because we know it. it. It's home. So we need to create a different home. And I hope that the new chapter in this book on anxiety and trauma and my firm insistence that if there's one thing we can do for ourselves that will help us, it's to learn to begin meditating every day because that's how we get home. And by continuing the practice, it's how we stay home or are able to go out and come back easily to our home. Thank you. You know, we have so many questions coming in from the audience, and I know our community was so excited about, about having you on. So I, I want to um, honor that and, and address some audience questions, if that's okay with you. Sure, go for it. There's, there's one here from Carrie that's just, I think, important. It, it, she just says, can you really recover from codependence? I need to say this. It's not a disease. It is a very human condition. It's human behaviors. It's human traits. Yes, we can. We can get rid of the old story and begin creating a new story, Carrie, at whatever point we decide. It's not going to happen in one second. I keep talking into the microphone. Um, it's not going to happen in one second. But it's a process of learning Learning to express ourselves, trust ourselves. And that, that can take years sometimes, but it's fun because we're at least not being berated and devalued uh, unless we do it to ourselves. We're um, enlightening ourselves. 
we're raising our vibrational level. We're we're doing things that it's like, you know, you cannot watch, you cannot watch a baby, a human, or a plant grow. If you sit there and stare at it, you will not see it growing. We will lose that battle. But we can see over a period of days, weeks, months, even a year, we can begin to see, oh, yeah, I am different. And this is how, with codependence, it's often as simple as learning to set boundaries, learning to express when we want to say no, when a sound person would say no, and then we're doing it just by saying no. No explanations, just no. Terry's put in a, a, a little bit of a qualifier to that question saying, do you ever stop worrying about other people and feel peace and authenticity in yourself? There's times we, we worry more. I mean, if we have a family member or a loved one in some kind of trauma, again, it's not dysfunctional to be concerned about someone we love. It's what we do with it. And are we like putting more concern into the other person than we are into ourselves? But yes, uh, no, I mean, we don't ever, if we ever stop caring about people, we're not recovering, are we? We're um, probably dead. but we can learn to care in ways that work for them and for us. It, just, it takes practice and, and probably a support group, especially with setting boundaries. Setting boundaries can be so hard. Um, how do you tell your child no when you really feel like you should give them everything they want, even though you know it's not good for them? How do you end a dysfunctional relationship with someone you still love? but you know it's not helping either one of you. I mean, these are hard things, but we can do hard things. Every one of us, we can say the hard things and we don't have to be mean. We just have to mean what we say. So the answer to the question is still yes and be patient, Carrie. But will we ever stop caring for people? That's a normal human behavior. It's not a sickness. It's what we do with it that can make ourselves sick and annoy the other person. Thank you. And thanks for that question, Carrie. There's a question from Eileen who says, what are your thoughts about codependent habits being reignited when trauma and grief take place? Any recommendations for one in this cycle? I'm so sorry <laughs> because it is the biggest trigger there is to codependency issues. Um, it's so hard to set boundaries when we're in the throes of a big loss. We don't want to lose anything more. We don't want anyone more going away from us, leaving us. And so we will sometimes go along with things that maybe aren't in our best interest just because we don't want to lose anything else. It's a very sticky, messy, uncomfortable process. We need to slow down and get through it very carefully. With, with, with grief and trauma, a day is too much. We need to take it an hour or two at a time. 
and be gentle with ourselves. What What's one of the first things a practiced codependent will do when things get tough, we turn on ourselves, you know, we accuse ourselves, we feel guilty, we say, look what you've done now. I mean, we do all the hideous things to us that the worst people in our lives have done to us. And that's not helpful. We can, we need to start by being gentle with ourselves and moving more slowly. It's usually the impulsive behaviors that get most of us into trouble. I don't know if that helped at all, Irene. It's that's the tricky thing about this format is we we don't know a hundred percent how how your answers impact, but I, I think from my perception that was that was a helpful response. There's a question here from uh, uh, someone that doesn't give a name um, who says, through your book, I now understand how I developed my severe codependent behaviors, and it had nothing to do with alcohol or drug issues. And now the subject, if you will, of my controlling behaviors is my 14-year-old son, who I am convinced is heading down the wrong path. Is there any supplemental advice you have if the subject is your child? How do we find the balance of healthy parental control and letting go? Well, it's a challenge most parents are facing now. I mean, I'm in a recovery group with my grandson you know, and my daughter, you know, a support group um, to deal with our codependency issues as a family. So it does take continued awareness. And I mean, talk about getting thrown into the pot of cold water that starts boiling with a child that can so easily happen because all of a sudden they're out of control. We feel it's like our job to keep them safe and what do we do? How do we handle this? If you put a child in treatment too soon, it's not going to work. It's it's difficult, but we can do it. Um, the relationship isn't going to likely feel warm and cozy all the time, but it's a matter of, again, calming down and starting out. What do I need? What do I want for my child? I heard a great quote even just last week. It's our jobs as parents to make sure that every time a child hits our boundaries, they're the same. The child knows they can depend on that. They know, know our boundaries will continue to be the same. That's our job as a parent, not to give them everything they want. Thank you. There's a question here from Corny who says, how do you navigate commitment versus codependency in marriage? What's the difference? I would say codependency means we're doing all the compromising, we're doing all the sacrificing, and we're doing all the suffering, which pretty much defines codependency. Um, commitment means, again, I'm going to go back to my original decision, we're committed to ourselves. We're committed to what we want, not rigidly so, and not devaluing other people's commitments, but we're, we know who we are and we're committed to what we want, but we also respect our partners. Commitments 
the things that are important to them and the things they need to do. And I mean, I wish I could just give you two sentences that told you how to do it every day, but I don't have those. It's a practice of learning to walk that ground and staying committed to ourselves because we fold as codependents we fold so easy oh yeah i'll do that for you i'll do this for you yeah i'll think that way yeah i i, I can live with this it's not that bad we're the frog in the water where the temperature has been turned up and we're just compromising and accepting too many things that aren't necessary so that's it on my answer to that thank you now, this is a question I wanted to ask you as well. And Jillian has put in this question. So thanks, Jillian. Jillian's asking, aren't women socialized to be codependent? That's a great question. Yes, we are. I mean, a few thousand years ago, women's only hope of having a life was to be married. And in that case, she had to keep her husband happy or he'd divorce her. She couldn't even divorce him. I mean, we're not that far away from very archaic times for women when we didn't have much say and we were most likely raised to be codependent. And so there are cultural threads. There are historic threads running through this codependency stuff <laughs> um, all the time that that we need to release and be aware of. And when we talk about leaving legacies for our kids, probably one of the most helpful things we can do is leave legacies of health, of healthy behaviors, of showing, showing what it looks and feels like to love yourself and love others, to respect yourself and respect others. Because most of us haven't seen a lot of that, which you know, is the heartbeat of healthy relationships. And I, I guess my, my sort of follow-up to that is, and there's a question here about how, from um, Joy, about how do you deal with relationships with a narcissist? So in your research and experience, if women... Joy, run. Right. <laughs> no contact. Right. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, that's fine. I, I, I guess my question is, if women are more socialized or conditioned to be codependent, what, is, what does that say about men's conditioning in our culture? Well, I, over the years, I've seen more and more an increasing percentage of people with codependency issues to be men. Um, yeah. And, to, and often now to even be the abused partner in a relationship or marriage. So I, I don't think our sexual orientation has as much to do with it or our gender has as much to do with it as all the formative things from our childhood, our beliefs, the story we tell ourselves, the story we're living with about ourselves. And we can change our story. We can. It, it does take work and commitment, but it's worth it. You know, it genuinely is worth it to change our story. And to start telling ourselves a better one. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, Melody, is, is um, kind of the younger generation 
emotions and what you're seeing in, in chapter 20, this new chapter where you focus on trauma and anxiety, uh, soothe yourself is the title of the chapter. You share a bunch of different stories. And one is uh, of Leah, a 19 year old college freshman who's suffering from crippling anxiety. And something she said kind of just smacked me in the face. And I had to ask you about it. She said, I and most of my classmates aren't that interested in getting married, having families. We're trying to figure out how to make the world a better, safer place. I'm wondering, do you think that these younger generations are more sensitive to all the pain, the, the craziness that's going on in the world, and that's why they're experiencing so much anxiety? I think right now, in, in, in my humble opinion, we have global trauma. I mean, truly global trauma that has attached itself to almost every human being. Um, I don't think anyone escapes from that. And the younger people are the more sensitive because they're, they're not formed yet. Their brains aren't formed. And when they live with trauma and anxiety every day, they might come from a wonderful home. But it's not a lot different if they're dealing with that kind of trauma and anxiety than living in a home where they're abused because they've got all these disruptive emotions just trapping them and shaking them by the neck all the time. It's, um, I said in the book, if there was one gift I could give every child, if there was one gift I wish I would have had growing up, it would have been the gift of meditation, the ability to find home in myself and create and keep a safe home in myself, regardless of what's going on around me. So yeah, I do think younger people, they're, they're, they're just about everyone right now is being born into anxiety and trauma. Um, it can't be escaped. But on the other hand, you turn that around, we're also in a time of very promising spiritual evolution and transformation in our world. So yeah, it's gonna, you know, it's gonna feel a little sketchy from time to time. But I'm sure you're familiar with Eckhart Tolle, right? Yes. Yeah. He talks about a new earth. That's what we're creating right now. You know, as the old slips away, we're helping to create a new world. And we do that one day, one sentence, one relationship at a time. There's a, there's a really interesting question here. You, you just talked about meditation. You've mentioned it a couple of times. And uh, Lauren says, what, what can I do in the moment when I feel overwhelmed with intense feelings of attachment to the addict? Meditation feels impossible when I am feeling the extreme urge to know and step in. Well, Anxiety and fear are very counterintuitive. They will guide us to do all the things that will make our anxiety worse. They'll guide us to scroll through the phone. They'll guide us to check through his or her pockets. I mean, and then that creates more anxiety. I don't know anything to do other than get ourselves out in nature and do a, a like a quick meditation, do a 20 minute meditation. I don't short of taking pills, which ultimately doesn't work. I don't know anything to do other than meditation in nature for 
soothing ourselves. I really don't. Because if we listen to our anxiety, it's going to just keep us going and keep it us churning it up. Also, another thing that works for me is the steps, um, the 12 steps. I am powerless over people, places, and things, and my life has become unmanageable. Came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. You know, those are two steps that I use frequently. And the serenity prayer. But if we're already in anxiety, we may have buzzed 60 miles beyond that point and we need to meditate or get out in nature, clear ourselves, breathe, and, and get peaceful. Because otherwise, we'll just want to find out what he's doing and we'll be obsessed with that. Have you ever, have you ever worked with any... Um somatic practices i think i see a yoga mat on the floor oh yeah my podcast room is also my yoga room um that, that's very good i have a little routine i do every day um usually in the morning it takes about 20 minutes and anything we can do our bodies are our home anything we can do in our body or to calm ourselves with med meditation is creating calm and peace in our home Anything we do up here usually isn't. When we start worrying, when we start having anxiety, when we start fussing, we're creating a fire in the house. This is a question from someone who asked to remain anonymous, who says, how do I learn to set boundaries with my husband who is an alcoholic or anyone for that matter? I tend to set rules. Thank you so much. I love your book. It has saved me. Um, there is no one magical way to set boundaries, but I'm I'm hoping to write more about it because it seems to be a very requested topic right now. But if we're setting rules, we're telling someone what to do. That's not setting a boundary. Setting a boundary is saying and meaning how far we'll go what we'll do, what we won't do. That our boundaries are about us. They're not about the other person. And if that person is a child, it could be, if you're not gonna quit drinking and I've already put you through treatment and you're determined to drink again, you can't drink at home. I won't finance your recovery. I won't be the janitor and I won't be the, um, the fixer. And, or, or, or the banker. I won't be the janitor and I won't be the banker. Um, but we have to know where we're at. There's no like list of boundaries. What is bothering us most right now? What is that person doing most right now that we feel like we have to get enmeshed in their behavior? Because if we don't, if we don't do it, this will happen or that might happen or that might happen. It's, and it's also understanding what our responsibilities are and what they aren't. Now, our responsibilities with a child under the age of five are much different than they are if we're talking about a 17-year-old or an 18-year-old. So we have to combine our heart and our mind when we're not in the midst of anxiety and sort, what do I want? What do I need to do for me? Not what do I want the other person to do? What do I want and what do I need to do for me in this particular situation? So. 
More will be coming out on that though, I promise. Um, one of the things that's happened or that I've seen anyway is many of the baby boomers were raised by abusive parents. And so they determined never to have their kids have that kind of pain, which is honorable, but many have gone too far and that along with YouTube and narcissism have given us generation of, in many cases, over-entitled kids. And that's something we each need to sort for ourselves. It's not my job to tell anyone how to parent, but I can tell you when you're ready to say no, you can say it. No is a complete sentence. Thank you. There's there's a, a question here from Vicki that's interesting. I'm curious to hear what, what you have to say. So Vicki says, I've read your first book. I was definitely in your book. I've been actively working CODA, meetings, sponsor, 12 steps. It helps a lot. But I'm hearing these new buzzwords like narc or narcissist, a lot of labeling and diagnosing others, blaming. I find this keeps me still focused on others. Are you using these kinds of words in your new book or chapter? I don't think I did. Um, some might be in the new workbook. I don't know. Only as it, It's only helpful to know in terms of getting past our confusion and identifying the problem. As soon as we identify the problem, it's no longer our job to keep labeling the other person. And it's really not our business. We just need to know that's another pot that it just seems so comfortable. The water seems perfect when you get in. And then pretty soon it's rip roaring, boiling, and we're too burned to get out. So it's, it, it can be helpful in understanding how it's impacted us. Like, oh, I'm not crazy. He's a narcissist. Or I'm not crazy. He's an alcoholic. But to go on and on about it is, um, you know, over-focusing on the other human. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Thank you. Now, there's a question here from Shannon. Why do I feel my partner's mental health is my responsibility to fix? Why is it I'm made to feel it's my fault when he tells me it isn't, but his actions say otherwise? Well, I, I think she needs to answer that for herself because it sounds like most alcoholics like to blame their drinking on something outside of themselves, you know? So they will try and make it our, we, we, we need to know our boundaries, our limits. We need to know what's true, what's not true. And if we don't know it, we need to be able to say, I don't know, can I get back to you on that? Um, people do like to blame their behavior on other people. Codependents like to blame their behavior on other, we all do that. It's a very human, human thing. Yeah, I did that because of Donald Trump, you know. <laughs> but it doesn't help change. It doesn't facilitate change. Thank you. And thanks, Shannon, for that question. 
Melody, in the book, you share the story of your house fire mm. and how that was actually was what got the recovery process started for you. It did. Yeah. Could you share a bit of that story and some words that might help people in need of some inspiration on where to start in their recovery from codependency? I was going down under with my codependency so badly. My husband was lying to me constantly. I was believing his lies mostly, but just enough that I was constantly confused and felt like I was going crazy. And so Nicole went to school. Shane was home playing. I went into the restroom, was trying to put some makeup on, a half-hearted attempt. And Shane came into the bathroom and he said, Mommy, can you come now, please? I said, well, in a minute. He said, no, you better come now. And he took my hand and dragged me into the bedroom, which was in a full-blown, roaring fire. It had reached up to the curtains. It was consuming the room. So I grabbed his hand, we went out, and then I got a neighbor to call the fire department. The house was pretty much demolished. It was two weeks before Christmas. The insurance company moved us into an apartment, the other edge of town. But this mucking around in my depression and my anxiety and my worrying about what he was doing, what he wasn't doing, what was the future of my marriage, what was the future of my family, what was going to happen to any of us in this. I didn't have time for that. You know, I had to help work because, of course, the alcoholic took off. He had to leave town right after the fire. He couldn't handle it. Um, so... I started working with the insurance company, with the builders. Um, it literally lit a fire under me. And one of the downs, there are many downsides to codependency, but one of the larger ones is we start, we stop believing in our ability to think, to feel, to solve problems, to identify problems in many cases. And then to find the strength to move on with our, our lives. Okay, we, we get paralyzed and stuck in that paralysis. Well, that really did lit, light a fire under my butt. You know, I got going. I had to meet with people. I had to do things I didn't know I was even capable of do, doing. Um, and it was so good for me. It was so good for me. I started coming back to life like a plant that was dead and it was starting to be put in the sun and watered. And I don't know, the tarot would call it a tower moment. Definitely. It was a tower moment. My whole life burned up. But in return, I got a new one. I, and I got myself back. It was just blasted climb. I don't know why we let other people demolish our souls the way we do sometimes. And I, it, it's usually when we really love someone. Um, but we will turn our souls over to them and say, yeah, go ahead. Take as many scoops of it as you need. And that doesn't help us. We're here to be a human being and, and have agency over our lives, our emotions, what we do. And to enjoy life. And that may sound quite foreign to people in the throes of codependency, but it's our job to be peaceful and enjoy our life. 
Um, yeah, that's it. Thank you. I want to thank our, our live audience for, for all the wonderful questions and uh, the Banyan community is so fantastic. So we really appreciate you and it's so great to have you here live with us. Um, we've been speaking with the wonderful Melody Beattie about her revised and updated edition of Codependent No More, how to stop controlling others and start caring for yourself. It was released in October, 2022. Melody, I, I understand you're working on a, an inspirational memoir right now. Can you tell well, us? I, I'm going to start with a new workbook for codependency first, because I feel oh. that more of a priority. And then I'm going to switch into living by spirit, which will be the book after that. Any anything else you want people to know about or any parting words uh, for our audience today? Never underestimate the power of gentle, vulnerable, and humble self-love. It can change everything. Even our desire to search through the addict's pockets and car. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us and and truly for for all the work you've done over over the years and you've helped so many people. Uh, we appreciate you very much. This has been just like in the old days when we used to have bookstores in America. It has been just like going to a bookstore and giving a talk. And I've loved it. I love being here. I've loved talking to you and fielding the questions from your audience. Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970. Our podcast producer is Jacob Steele. The show is edited by Abdo Habani. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books or listen on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at banyan.com. <laughs>